0: Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel 16. Uh, we are wrapping up our sermon series on the life of Samuel. And uh, it has been just a, an encouragement to me to see God's sovereign hand, uh, not only in Samuel's life, but in the life of these this this people of Israel. Um, and and on, a, on a different note, it's been... Um, uh, in another way, it's been encouraging to me just to see uh, just how much uh, time and, and effort our pastor puts into preparing these sermons every week. I i done it for three weeks, and I just think he like the, he does this like every single week, uh, and it, like he he works hard to lay out a feast for us. Uh, and so he's yeah, and I, I was just very appreciative of his faithfulness to this church. Um, so. Uh, But going back to what we've been talking about, um, it has been an amazing time just to see how how God is involved uh, and is in control of the lives of his people. Uh, We saw that the Lord is not indifferent to his people. uh, He's not distant, but he is very concerned for the well-being of his creation. And that's what we're going to see today, that that God's not only concerned for their well-being, but he's really concerned for the heart. And that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on the heart. We're focusing on how God looks at the heart and how God desires that our hearts be wholly devoted to him. So I wanted to start with, with a question here. Uh, what's the difference of a believer's heart, or of, a, of a person who has submitted to Christ, what's the difference, or what's, sorry, not the difference, what does that heart have in common with the heart of someone who has not submitted to Christ, someone, the, the heart of, a, of an unbeliever? Now we know the differences. As far as differences goes, God, uh, one is alive in Christ, while, uh, while the unbeliever's heart is, is dead in sin. Right? This is where we all were at one point. For a believer, God has replaced that heart of stone with a heart of, of, of flesh. So we know the differences, but what do they have in common? What well, is what they have in common? And it kind of plays into the theme of what we've been talking about this whole uh, sermon series here. Both hearts play a role in God's sovereign plan. Both hearts are being used by God, but in different ways. And this is an aspect of God's sovereignty that we haven't really focused on before. We focus on God's sovereignty when it comes to circumstances. We saw that with Hannah. We focus on God's sovereignty when it comes to to the people's sin, when they rejected God as their king. But what about the hearts? And when we talk about God's sovereignty uh, over the human heart, we're really getting at uh, something that is unique to God. That God is unique in that he is, he, he is the only one that has the power of self-determination. That He is the only one whose plans cannot be thwarted. And that even overrides the heart of man. Now, why does this matter? Because depending on where, you are, where your heart is, depending on whether you're a, a heart of a believer, whether, you're a, uh, whether you have a heart after God's own heart, depending on where that where you are determines how God will use you in, in his sovereign plan. And my hope and my, my prayer as we go through this passage is that you would be encouraged today to, to place your trust in, in the sovereign plan of God, in, in the sovereign plan of the God of the universe, and that you would set your heart to obey him. That's what we're looking at today. Very simple, but so profound. And I hope to do this by looking at three characteristics of a God-sovereign plan. So we're going to look at God's plan never fails. God's plan looks at the heart. And God's plan chooses his elect. So God's plan never fails. God's plan looks at the heart. And God's plan chooses his elect. So that's what we're looking at today in our text We'll be in 1 Samuel 16, and read with me as we start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Well, take a heifer. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of that city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they entered, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Uh, pray with me. Father, we read this text and, and are struck by how much more you see. Lord, we know that, that we, are, we are limited in our sight, limited in our knowledge, that we might even put up a facade, Lord, but you see it right through that. You see to the heart. And I pray, Lord, that as, as we come before you now as we open your scriptures that you would teach us at this very moment, that you would convict us in our heart, that you would encourage us in our heart, so that we would be like David, like we would we would pursue you, that we would be men men and women who are after your own heart, who who desire to see you glorified. So Father, I lift this time up to you. We ask that, that your spirit teaches us this morning. For Jesus' name, Amen. So when we come to 1 Samuel 16, there's a lot has happened. Last, last week, we were in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we saw that the people of Israel have rejected God as their king and instead wanted a worldly king. They looked at the nations around them and said, We want a king like that. We want to put our trust in a king like the nations. Now, by the time we get to chapter 16, you know, a, a lot has happened then. Uh, in chapter 9, we were introduced to Saul. And we get quite a description of of Saul. Saul was exactly the king that Israel was asking for. So God tells Samuel, anoint Saul as king. And think about the description. We read it last week that that he was a choice man. That he was the most handsome man uh, of all Israel. That no one was as tall as him. And what comes to mind for me is is Gaston from, from Beauty and the Beast. And I just picture, you know, Saul sitting in the tavern and everyone's singing about, no one's as tall as Saul. No one's thick. Oh, no one's, what was this the line? No one's neck is incredibly thick as Saul, which I always thought was kind of weird. <laughs> but Saul fits that. He fits that perfectly. And as we continue to read through through, through 1 Samuel, um, we find that that. Saul is exactly the kind of king that Samuel feared. Remember Samuel gave the, the people a warning. He's like, if you want this king, this is what's going to happen. And Saul proves to be that king. And what I want to do right now, before we get into uh, chapter 16, I just want to look uh, somewhat at a quicker pace. I want to look at a couple passages that really reveal the heart of Saul. Because that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the heart. So come, turn with me back a little bit. 1 Samuel 13. And we get to 1 Samuel 13. Uh, Samuel is about to fight the Philistines. However, Saul has given him very explicit instructions to wait for him, that he will come, that uh, Samuel, being a priest, was sacrificed to the Lord uh, before they went into battle. So that was his instruction, but but we see that Saul does not obey. Starting at verse 8. Now, Saul waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Well, because I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling in Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So look at what, what, what Saul does there. He says, I was forced. I had to do it. I had to do this this outward act because I wanted God's blessing. And what he he was really trying to do was force God's God's blessing onto him by by doing this outward act. And and, and doing that, he disobeyed, right? He, He wasn't supposed to do that sacrifice. That sacrifice is only supposed to be done by a priest, right, by Samuel. But he disobeys, and to him, that outward act of sacrifice, that was essential, but the word of God was dispensable. See the problem there? He's focusing more on the outward than what God has said. And I look, look at the, as a consequence of his disobedience. Look at 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord uh, what the Lord commanded you. The immediate consequence there is that, Saul, you could expect that your reign will come to an end, that your line will not continue, because God has rejected you in favor for someone after his own heart. Now go to First Samuel 15. We'll jump to first Samuel 15. We're going to start at verse 19 there. To set up the stage here, God gave, Samuel, uh, God gave Saul a mission. And that mission was to go to the Amalekites, a nation that has been God's enemy and an enemy of, of Israel, and to destroy them. But rather than obeying what God's word has said, rather than obeying the, the, rather than doing the mission the Lord gave him and destroying everything, Saul decided to keep the things that were a benefit to him, the, the, to keep the things that were choice. Uh, and one of these, things, or one of these things, is a, is a king. The king uh, Agag. He keeps the king because there is some benefit, probably monetary. There is some benefit for to keep him uh, rather than than to kill him, which is what the Lord had commanded. So Saul, Samuel confronts Saul, and in verse nineteen we see that confrontation. And this is where things really reach a boiling point. I, after this moment. The relationship between Saul and Samuel is not the same, and therefore the relationship between Saul and God is not the same. Look at verse nineteen. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Okay, here's Saul's response. This is really indicative of his heart here. Then Saul said to Samuel, "I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I have brought back Agag, the king of uh, Am. Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, they took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the choices of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. It's, that is incredibly indicative of his heart. He does not own up to his sin. Right? Rather, rather than saying, yes, I, I disobeyed, he said, well, it's not my fault. I did my part, although I, I kept the king. Let's ignore that. I did my part. It was the people. The peoples were, were doing and they were doing the sacrifice to your God. He refused to take responsibility for his sin, and, and this is where that prideful heart comes through. And look at the consequences there. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Again, we see that Saul is concerned about the external sphere rather than the internal. He's more concerned about the sacrifice, and, and sa- Samuel comes in and says, hey, sacrifices are not important here. It's your obedience. That's what the Lord is after. And I think this is a lesson for us here. The outward acts do not matter to God if it is not followed by a characteristically obedient life. I mean, you could be going to church. That doesn't matter to God. You could be reading your Bible. That doesn't matter to God if it is not followed by an obedience to his word. And I I think we want to read the word or come to church and check that off. I've been faithful to the Lord and, li- and you live the rest of your life, the rest of the week or the rest of the day without obedience to him. Well, that sacrifice meant nothing to him because it's not followed by obedience. It reveals that you don't want to submit to God, but that you want God to submit to you. And this is exactly where Saul is. And God takes a kingdom from him. God gives it to somebody else. God gives it to, to a neighbor who's better than him. God gives it to, to someone who is after his own heart. And Samuel is distraught. Chapter 15 ends on a sorrowful note. Jump down to verse 35. Right before we get to our chapter for this morning, verse 35. So Saul departs from Samuel, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. The relationship between Samuel and Saul is over, and for Samuel, this was, a, this was devastating. Right, think about it from Samuel's perspective. He was a shepherd. All right? and if you want to see the heart of a shepherd, you need to go back to chapter 12 to see the heart of Samuel. In chapter 12, he says this, Far, and he's talking to the people here, "...far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way." See, that was the heart of Samuel. He, he, he saw Israel reject God as their king. But he still wanted them to, to obey the Lord. He wanted them to repent and to follow God. That was his heart. And to see Saul reject God again, it's like the rejection of God all over again. And he's greed. Now this is exactly what the heartless shepherd, this is how the heartless shepherd should respond to sin, to the sin of his sheep. This is a mark of a faithful man. Faithful men mourn over the unfaithfulness of sinners. It is a good thing for something so sinful to affect you. But look at verse 35. It doesn't only affect Samuel as the shepherd. Verse 35, look at the last sentence. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We read that the Lord regrets making uh, Saul king. Now, that, that brings up a lot of theological questions. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the questions is, does, would the Lord go back and do it over again? Uh, w- if he were to go back, would he not choose Saul? Well, we could answer that question by going to other scriptures, and one of the other scriptures is right here on the same page. Uh, just scroll up, or if you, that's like if you have an iPhone, I guess. Uh, just go up to verse 29. Uh, verse 29 also, the glory of Israel, look, what, look at this, and this is a description of God here, will not lie or change his mind. And that that's the same word for, verb in the, in the uh, Hebrew for repent. He will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So the scripture tells us that, that God does not regret in the sense that he will go back and change it. And we could look at other scriptures. We could look at Hebrews uh, 6.18, Titus 1.2, both of those scriptures will say God, God doesn't lie. God doesn't change his mind. So what do we mean? What do we mean when we say regrets? Well, this is a, a, a description of God's great sorrow. And I'm going to throw you a, a $5 word here. Uh, it's called, uh, when we see regret, something like that, it's, it's called an anthropomorphic word or anthropomorphic use of emotions here. Anthropomorphic just means we're attributing to God an emotion that is felt by man. So the feelings, and this is the way I have it, the feelings of a perfect God is described by using emotions of, of imperfect humans. See, so God is not indifferent uh, to the sins of Samuel. God is not unaffected. It does sadden him, but it is still all part of God's plan. And so, verse 35, the the end of chapter 15, ends with this this sorrowful note. And we get to our passage for this morning. So this is right when everything's going wrong for Samuel. Right when there, there is no hope, the king, which has such potential, turned out to be a total failure. And now God reminds Samuel that he is in control. And we get to our first point for today. The first characteristic of God's plan, that God's sovereign plan never fails. We read that in verse 1. Let's look at verse 1 together. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So how long exactly has it been? I mean, we're going from chapter 15 to chapter 16. What was that time period? Um, It's kind of hard to tell but uh, if, if we line up with some certain dates, it turns out to be about a year. Okay, so uh, about a year ago, let's just say roughly a year ago, saw, Samuel sees Saul for the last time, and verse 16 now, he's, he's still grieving. And, and God says, how long are you going to keep growing? How long are you going to keep grieving? I have rejected him from, from being king over Israel. Now, let me just kind of preface this, that, that the Lord is not against mourning or grieving, uh, think about Samuel's mom, right, Hannah. The Lord did not kick Hannah out of the temple. Right? He didn't say, Hannah, get over it. I'm, I'm in control. Move along. Hannah stayed before the Lord and poured out her soul. And that was just that one night that we saw. But how many years before that was she going before the Lord and weeping before him? So I don't think God is against grief and I think there's definitely a time for grief. But there is a point where, where grieving must end so that the, the work of God must continue. Uh, there is this uh, memorial that I came across in, um, on, in uh, Westminster Abbey. I didn't come across it. i have never been there, so it's not like I was there. But I came across online. Um, and I don't get out much. Uh, so there is this, this memorial of Charles Wesley. And Charles Wesley, most of you know him. He, he was probably, One of the most famous and prolific hymn writers wrote a lot of the hymns that we're familiar with. And at the bottom of this memorial, there's a quote from Charles Wesley, and it says this, God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. A a faithful minister may go to be with the Lord, but God continues to work through those who remain. And so there are times where, where, where we we need to move forward, do the work of the Lord, and this is especially true for Samuel here. Samuel is just seeing, is, is grieving over the sin of Saul, or the disappointment of that. But God's work must continue. Listen, the, the grief of sinners should never eclipse the hope of the Savior. Right? If we just mourned over what the the. the The depravity of man mourned over how sad sin is, we'll never get to the good news. But this is what we see in Romans 5, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds a little more. And even in verse 16 here, God is at work in the midst of grief, even when it seems that sin is winning, God's plan is enduring. God's plan cannot be thwarted, God's plan never fails there. And because He is sovereign, we can't be moved to obedience. We can't move forward in full assurance that, that this powerful God can redeem any situation. Don't look at a situation and say, This is too sinful. God can't use it. But God is sovereign and He will use it. And so is, uh, Samuel is reminded of that here. Look at verse, uh, going back to verse 1. He says, How long will you, will you grieve? I have rejected him over king of Israel. I have a mission for you. You gotta get up. You gotta do something. Here it is. I'm 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 working. Fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Yeah, God says to Samuel. Yep, yeah, I reject Saul. That's true. But I have something for you to do. I'm moving forward. There's there's, there's a plan in motion here, and I'm working. So Samuel gets up and goes, but he has a, a, a serious concern here. Look at verse 2. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Now, I think, I think Samuel has a point there. Um, I mean, uh, if anything, you look through history, how many times do kings just relent their power to somebody else? Oh, you, wanna take, you want to oh, take my kingship? Here you go. That's not really what happens in history. right? Usually there's, there's like a war or somebody ends up dying, Um, right? Think of, like, Caesar and, man, so many, you think of so many uh, examples in history there. And so so Samuel is rightly concerned. If if Saul sees me walking around looking for the next king, what do you think Saul's going to do to me? Saul sees Samuel going to get a king. Saul's going to kill him. And so God has a plan for that. Look at, verse, look at verse 2 again. And the Lord said, well, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord and you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. So if you're worried about Saul, I have a plan. Take a heifer and, and you know, we'll, we'll say you're doing a sacrifice. Now, what comes to, what might come to mind is the question of whether God is lying here. You know, you're looking at this like, well, is God being deceitful? Is that, that's not really, does God do that? Well, I want to say when you come across something like that, you need to trust in two things. You need to trust in the scriptures that it is an inspired word of God that is infallible, that is inerrant. So you could trust what the scriptures say. And another thing, when you come across something difficult in, in a passage, be, expect to see something new about God. That's what I love about difficult passages, that God reveals himself to you even more. So when we get to something like this, like is God lying here? Well, First, we know 1 Samuel 15, 29. We read it earlier. God does not lie. So we rest on that. And second, I don't think God tells Samuel to lie. Right? He, Samuel is a priest, and what priests do is they actually do offer sacrifice. And that is what Samuel's going to do. He's going to offer a sacrifice. But God is not obligated to tell Saul anything. Saul is not privy to, to God's uh, to God's um, plans. And we see something similar, similar in the gospel. You think about the gospels, and you think about Jesus um, using parables. Why did Jesus use parables? Why not just tell the, tell the truth to, uh, plainly? And the reason why he told parables in the first place was to, uh, was to be a judgment on those who rejected him. So Saul has rejected God, and is no longer privy to God's plan. So God does not have to explain himself to him. So Samuel grabs his horn of oil, grabs a cow, and he leaves Ramah, and he moves out trusting God's plan, trusting that God's in control, trusting that even though Saul was a huge disappointment, that that did not upset God's sovereign plan. And this is what we we take away when we think about God's plan never fails. You, know, you might want to think about like, the upsets you've had in your life. Think about the, the, the failures or the disappointments or the regrets that you might have in your life. Those, those things are not outside of God's control. Those things, it's not like those things were so bad that God doesn't use them. Nothing falls out outside of God's purview, nothing confounds His plan. And what I love about God, there's so many things though. But one of the things I love about God is that He is a redeemer, right? He redeemed us through the blood of His Son, and He redeems situations for good. What God meant, uh, what man meant for evil, God means for good. And so, 1 Samuel, God's going to redeem the situation by anointing a, ki- a king of his, cho- of his choosing. This king will not be chosen by merits. He's not going to be chosen by by His um, military experience. He's not going to be chosen by his outward appearance. God's going to choose a king based on the heart. Based on the heart. So we get to our next point. We saw that God's plan never fails and that God's plan looks at the heart. So we get to verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said. Came to Bethlehem. And the elders of that city came trembling to meet him. Why do you think that the, the elders are, are scared here? Well, Got to know a couple things about Saul. Saul is a judge, and so if, if a judge comes to your town, that usually means something's up, right? Samuel's going to dish out law and order, Samuel style, or something like that. So you don't want Saul coming to your, or Samuel coming to your town. But also, we just—I'm sure—they heard that Samuel had a huge falling out with Saul, and they don't want that attention there. They don't—they don't want, they don't want uh, this this feud to coming to their to their town. But whatever the case, Samuel answers them and, and kind of helps them out. His, the elders say, Do you come in peace? And in verse 5, he says, Yes, I, in peace. I come in peace. And I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So it tells him to consecrate yourselves, prepare yourselves, wash yourselves, get out, put on clean clothes. We're gonna go before the Lord together. Now remember why Samuel's here in the first place. It is, I mean, it is to sacrifice. That was part of God's plan for him. Uh, But the primary reason was to look for a king. So Samuel starts to pay attention. They're in the sacrifice. Sons of Jesse start to come in. And the first son of Jesse that walks in is Eliab. And Samuel sees Eliab. And look at what he says to himself in verse 6. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Ha! Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This guy must be it. And I, I just imagine Samuel has his, his hands on the, on the horn of oil. He's like, this guy's it. I'm going to throw the, horn, the oil at him. And he's ready to go. <laughs> and You wonder why, why. Why is he doing that? What's the criteria that's, that Samuel is using to say that this Eliab has to be king? And we kind of see that in verse 7. Eliab has that handsome appearance. He was... He was uh, his, uh, we see in verse 7 that uh, the height of his stature, so he was a tall guy most likely. So overall, an impressive-looking man. And I like uh, one description of uh, one of the commentators put it, he is a real hunk of manhood, this Eliab. <laughs> uh, my goal is to have my wife call me that at some point. Yeah. Hunk of manhood. <laughs> All right, so who does this sound like, though? Not, not Sergio, not me. Saul, right? So this sounds like Saul. So Samuel looks at Eliab, kind of similar description to Saul, and says, ah, this is our king. He's the son of Jesse. This guy must be it. But God stops him there. He's like, no. Slow down. Look at what he says in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And here's the key verse. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the hearts. We've got to understand something, that the Lord's ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. And Samuel sees this firsthand. Samuel sees that God chooses on different criteria here. And what this verse tells us is something about how God operates, something how, about how God evaluates man. It's not on the outward appearance, now, I know this is pretty well known. Right, that God does not look at the outward appearance. That he, that he doesn't look at how we dress. He doesn't look at what car we drive. Um, he doesn't primarily look at how we act like in church. He looks at our hearts. And I think, I mean, this may sound like a Sunday school kind of message. I mean, we, how, I mean how many times have we heard this, this idea? But I think this is especially important for us today especially in a time where you have social media, especially when you, ha- when you have the internet, I mean, how often do we judge ourselves by outward appearances? How often do we judge ourselves by how we look or, or by what we have? We can so easily compare ourselves to, to people who have met the goals we, we want to meet for ourselves, right? If someone has, has met our financial goals or met our physical goals or, or met our family goals, we look at those people and say, I'm not there yet. And while we do need to be good stewards of those things, I think we could easily regard those things to be more important than they actually are. But what does God care about? This verse tells us that God cares about the hearts. He cares about your obedience to the word. I'm saying if you want to evaluate yourselves as God evaluates you, ask yourself these questions: Do you strive to flee from sin? Do you strive to serve the Lord your God with all your heart? Is seeing him glorified in what you say and in what you do your highest priority? These questions are heart issues. They don't go, they, we're not talking about the outward appearance here. You can even change our perspectives with this. How do we judge others? How do we judge others? Came across this website that, um, that only accepted members if they were, quote unquote, um, beautiful. Right, if, if they were attractive. And uh, this, this website uh, dumped 3,000 people because they stopped being attractive. Uh, and there was a quote there that said, they either, uh, they appear to be older than their initial profile. Like, well, who, who stays in there for more than two years? <laughs> because uh, I get old. Um, I, I definitely look older than past pictures. Uh, but So they, they just dump 3,000 people. Like, your, pro, your profile has been deleted because you're not attractive anymore. I just think, man, vanity of vanities right there. Now you might be thinking, you're just mad because they didn't let you in. <laughs> oh, that's kind of true. They, they probably wouldn't have. But this is not how God evaluates others. God doesn't look in the outward. And this is not how God wants us to evaluate others. Right? Think about James. We, we talk about James, James 2. And, we ha- and in James 2, where there's this, these rich people coming into the church. And James tells them, don't show partiality. Don't prefer them just because of, the, of their outward appearance. And he says this, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at your heart and especially when it comes to his elect. When it comes to choosing a king, as we see in 1 Samuel, there's no quality God is more interested in than the heart. Now Samuel finds this out kind of the long way. Uh, Look at verse 8. So uh, Jesse starts to bring out his people or his kids before him, and uh, Samuel says, no, this is not the one. Uh, Okay, let's bring out the next one. Number three, Shema comes out. No, the Lord's not either. Uh, the Lord has not chosen this one. Number four, number five, number six. I think at some point of all Samuel, I would just say, I'm just going to anoint the next one. Uh, this kid, uh, how many kids uh, does this guy have anyway? So Samuel waits and waits and waits, and none of them are God's chosen king. And I love how Samuel asks this question: Are these all the children? Because God told me that one of these king, one of your kids, are, are going to be the anointed. Uh, is going to be anointed king today. And none of these kids are going to be anointed king. So do you have any other kids? And Jesse responds. And we're introduced to the chosen king here. That God's plan here chooses his elect. So we saw God's plan never fails. God's plan looks at the heart. And now when we get to this part of the passage, we can see God's plan chooses his elect. So Jesse says to Samuel, actually, yeah, there's one more. Look at verse 11. There remains the yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, "Well, send and bring him, for he, we will not sit down until he comes here. So Jesse's like, yeah, okay, I have one more. Yes, the youngest one. But I didn't think it was really important to bring him to the sacrifice, because he's the youngest. He's kind of like a scrawny kid. I just left him with the sheep. And Samuel says, well, go get him, because we're not going to sit down, and we're not going to eat this, this sacrificial meal that we have until you actually bring him. He wants to see this kid. So verse 12, they bring in this boy. Look how it describes him. So he sent and brought him in in verse 12. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. And uh, just break that down a little bit. Ruddy is kind of a redhead. Uh, reddish, reddish looks, so most likely a redhead. Uh, and it, it reads that he, was, he has beautiful eyes, handsome appearance. This is probably not the hunk of manhood kind of handsome. That's not what we're talking about. This is kind of like when your grandma calls you handsome. Um, You know, it's not something you want your your wife to call you. And he was also the youngest. You know, I tried to find out the date, uh, how old um, he was at this moment. Probably around 15. I saw some lower estimates at 12. So relative to his older brothers, you know, this is a young kid here but this is the kid, this is a boy that God tells Samuel to anoint. Look at the end of verse 12. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Just imagine Samuel. Samuel says, well, Eliab's right there and I'm going to anoint this kid. I mean, the amount of trust that God has or that Samuel has in God. that he's, He just does it. Right? There's no hesitation. Then verse 13, And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord upon David. Now there are two subtle things here I want to point out. One is that the Spirit of God comes upon him. Now we've seen that before. the spirit of God came upon Samson. the Spirit of God of God came upon upon Saul. but what's the difference there? The difference between those two is that those were empower, uh, spirits of empowerment for a, a short moment of time. But look at what the, what the author adds here. Verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. Okay, nothing new. From that day forward. There's something special about David here because the Spirit stays with him. Unlike Saul, if you look at the next verse, and we're not going to get into this, but the next verse, the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. And another subtle thing here. Look at when David's name is told. You'll only see David's name after the Spirit of God rushes upon him. It's almost like the author was waiting for a big reveal, saying, hey, remember this, this guy you've been waiting for, this king that God has chosen? This is it. It's David. And when we read David, when's the last time we saw that word David? It goes all the way back to Ruth. And we have a connection there. God has been at work to bring about his king generations before David's even on the scene. Now we're we're gonna see that in more detail next week when our pastor comes back. We get to go back in Ruth and see the backstory of all that. But these subtle things highlight God's sovereignty here. So what does Samuel do? Well, Samuel packs up. Samuel rose and went up to and went to Ramah. He says, packs up, I'm going home. And Samuel drops off as a key character. Samuel has to obey the Lord and he doesn't wait around to see what happens. He says, Okay, I anointed this king, let's see what actually happens. He trusts in the Lord, and he leaves, and leaves it to God's sovereign purposes. Now, I imagine Samuel on the way home, like, you know, still trusting the Lord, but Samuel, like, I wonder what that kid's going to do. I mean, I, I anointed him, and I walked away. I'm sure his brothers had no idea, right? Some old guy just dumped, just dumped oil on, on our youngest brother. I'm sure that's what they're thinking. But Samuel's wondering, I'm sure Samuel's wondering, I wonder what, what this guy's going to do. Why did I anoint him? Why was this guy, why was this boy a man after God's own heart? And I think we could have the same question: Why is David called a man after God's own heart? Maybe by extension, how can we be a man or woman after God's own heart? So, look at David's life. Really, we're just going to look at David's life. Did David live what we would call a righteous life? Did he do everything perfectly? And we know that not to be the case. First Samuel, Second Samuel pretty much the history books of, of the Old Testament, they're very honest about David's sin. We know David grows up from this and becomes an adulterer. Oh, sorry, adulterer. He becomes an adulterer. He becomes a murderer. He's a polygamist. He marries other women, and as a result of marrying other women, a civil war breaks out where thousands of people die uh, in his nation. So we definitely can't say that David is a perfect king. In fact, he's far from perfect, right? But then, even knowing that, we go to, if you go to Acts 13, we're not going to go there, but if you go to Acts 13, David is still called a man after God's own heart, even after all this stuff is recorded. Why? And I think it is because of his faith. Even as a boy, David would, uh, if you go to chapter 17, David fights off bears and lions, and, and he does that in faith. He knows the Lord will deliver him. That same faith is what he goes up with Goliath. He, fought, he faces Goliath and he defeats him all in faith that the Lord will deliver him. And it is that same faith that David lies broken before God in Psalm 51. If you want to know David's heart, if you want to see what, it, what does a man after God's own heart look like, go to Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, he lies broken before God. He, he seeks God's forgiveness even though he knows he's born a sinner. He asked God to be gracious to him to create in him a clean heart. This is not the same heart that Samuel or that Saul had. Saul was very much unrepentant. He would not accept what he did for his, uh, would not accept responsibility for his sins. This is what makes a man or a woman enter God's own heart: is being more interested in God's glory, more interested in God's righteousness, rather than rather than your own. And what I find is so profound is this, that connects us back to God's sovereignty. Where did David get this faith from? God gave him, that, gave him that faith in his sovereignty. God gives him that faith. God gave him that heart that, that seeks the Lord. And so God chose him based off what God did for him and uses him greatly according to the sovereign plan. This is what God's sovereign plan is. God's plan never fails God's plan involves a heart. God's plan chooses his elect. And if I could just all, let me summarize that to two points. It'd be this. First, be encouraged that God is sovereign and in control over all things. Just, I've been saying that for three weeks. You know, we're, We've been looking at Samuel's life and, and in 1 Samuel, it's all about God's sovereignty, but I can't repeat it enough. You think about how God closed and opened the womb of Hannah. You think about how God used the people's rejection of him to get Saul, and God used that to bring about his chosen king. God is in control of all things. He's working out everything for good purposes, for his good purposes. What does that mean for you? Because God is sovereign, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because God is sovereign, what man means for evil, God means for good. And because God is sovereign, he could change the hardened heart of a sinner and turn him to repentance to God. God is in control and will always be in control. And we could trust him. That's what we walk away from 1 Samuel. And the second point here, not only can we trust that God is sovereign, but God can change hearts according to his purpose. How does God change hearts now? If we go to Romans, you see that God does this by the preaching of his word, by the word of Christ. That faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That's, a, that's, a kind of God, that's the kind of heart that God is after. A heart that has submitted to him. A heart that is has turned from their sins, like David, that lies broken in from him. If you want to be a, a man or woman after God's own heart, yeah, Answer this question. Does your only hope rest in the completed work of Christ? Or is your hope lying in being a good person? Do you have hope in in coming to church? Do you have your hope in doing good deeds? Listen, those things are outward appearances. God doesn't look at them for salvation. God God doesn't judge you based on that. God looks at your heart. So place your trust in the son of David. Place your trust in Jesus. He gave his life for us so that we would have eternal life. If you want to be a man and woman or woman after God's own heart, be a man or woman after Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the praise and glory and honor because you do not see as man sees but you see the heart. And Lord, help us to live in that reality. Help us to live in the, in the fact that, that your word discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that you look past our words, past what we say, past what we do, and you see the heart. Father, I pray that, that if, if, there's, if there's anyone here who has not submitted to you, that you would move them so that they would turn to you, that they would repent. Lord, I pray that you will work in, in all of our hearts, that if there's areas in our lives that, that, that we refuse to give to, that, that we hold close to our hearts, closer than we hold you, Lord, take that out. Lord, and in your sovereignty and in your grace, bring us and draw us closer to you. Praise Jesus' name. Amen.